So earlier today here in the fast lane, we touched on the news of uh, Adam Peters, the GM now for the Washington Commanders, comes over after spending time in the front office most recently with the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, One of the biggest moves that's popped up in the world of football changes in leadership. There have been many of those. We're using that blanket terminology with our next guest, of course, Gil Alexander, who's a host for VSIN as a numbers game there. Also, the Beating the Book podcast host as well. That's his podcast. And yes, we'll ask about the Australian Open later on. But he's a noted DC sports fan. And now there's new direction going. Um, I can't remember, Gil. And first of all, welcome back into the fast lane. It's a pleasure to speak with you. And uh, we're appreciative of your time, of course, today. I can't remember if it was a numbers game earlier this week or you're beating the book Super Wild Card Weekend podcast uh, preview that you had where you floated the potential of Jim Harbaugh leaving Michigan and going to the Washington Commanders. How does the news of Peters from San Francisco to D.C., impact your feeling and your knowledge of what might happen with that Harbaugh potential connection? Um, You know, it's funny. First of all, thanks for having me, Ed. I appreciate it. Um, I have, you know, it's funny. You asked me the question, is there, is there something about that hire that lends, that lends into it? Um, Something I had not admittedly just having gotten off air thought about necessarily. Um, but yeah, he's Adam Peters was the GM. What excuse me, was the assistant GM of the Niners? Was he the assistant GM while that while Harbaugh was there? I guess not. He was he was with the Denver Broncos at the time. Correct. Um, so he uh, he came to San Francisco afterwards. So there is no direct connection in that respect. Um, but I first of all, I like the Peters hire. Um, he has overseen a very solid stint in san francisco not overseen but the assistant gm there um he was the uh you know so i think that's a great background to have my whole thing with the coaching search for washington before we get to harbaugh specifically is you know i think the most the most shown graphic that we've had in the nfl in terms of mocking an organization if you will over the last year is this 2013 graphic that they show that Mike McDonald and Sean McVay and Matt LaFleur and Kyle Shanahan were all on Washington's coaching staff at the same time, and yet the organization didn't have the uh, the brains to hire any of them to be their head coach uh, under Daniel Snyder's helm. And so, you know, to me, I think your North Star in any coaching search ought to be pick the the coaching tree that you – believe to be the one you admire the most whichever one you admire the most if it happens to be the mike shanahan one you know that's one of them but whatever it is i think you pluck someone from that coaching tree and i think that's a great way to guide your search now the only the only exception to that is is if there is someone that has singularly been so successful in so many different places that it just overrides such a thing now i don't know if adam peter's thinks in that same way obviously he's coming into a spectacular situation where you know he's got over 75 million dollars in cap space they got the number two overall pick they got six picks in the top 102 they got nine picks overall in the upcoming draft they got a head coach opening of course being you know the crown of all of that um but i think you look at a guy like jim harbaugh and you say okay he's been he won a national championship at michigan he was he took the niners to a super bowl 
He was super successful at Stanford. Even before that, the University of San Diego with the Toreros. Every coaching spot he's been in, there's been a crescendo to greatness. So I think Harbaugh is that guy, and John Harbaugh is close by in Baltimore. Um, and if you come into that situation, this is not a Belichick or Pete Carroll, not trying to be ageist here, Ed, but they're, they're 72 years old, uh, 72 and 71, Carroll and Belichick respectively. Jim Harbaugh's 60. Jim Harbaugh could be down for a quote-unquote rebuild. Even though Washington is not like a complete rebuild, uh, it's about it, it's a, certainly a lot more rebuildy than Bill Belichick would want to be a part of. So I, I do think that, you know, the nice thing is that Adam Peters comes into this great situation. I think Harbaugh should override any other coach. Um, if you believe rumors, I have a buddy who's a urologist in D.C. He had a patient that swears that the deal is already done between Harbaugh and the commanders. I have no confirmation of that. Um, but sh- but after Harbaugh, I think then you go into the whatever coaching tree is your North Star, then you pluck from that tree. Gil Alexander with us here in the fast lane. He's a host of the Beating the Book podcast. Uh, they've got a super wild card weekend preview that's out. They just dropped one on the Australian Open. We'll nerd out with tennis to wrap up the fast lane uh, in just a minute. But um, you mentioned the Jim Harbaugh connection to the Washington Commanders. The one brushback that goes in my mind is if you bring someone like Adam Peters in as a GM uh, and from the San Francisco tree, pretty forceful spot. How much might that clash with the desire that clearly with Jim Harbaugh in particular, he seems to fit the mold of a head coach who, I wouldn't say it's totally my way or the highway, but it's less collaborative and more his vision, even the GM having to carry that out. No, it's a worthwhile, it's it's certainly a, a worthy point. But I think if you're, if you're, you know, I think there's there's a time for humility also, right? So like Adam Peters says, plenty to love about the job in terms of acquiring personnel again 70 i think it's 78 million under the uh you know in cap space the most in the nfl um obviously the number two pick obviously as i said all those picks in the top 102 so yes i mean i think ultimately harbaugh does have a history of sort of wearing on like his his relationship with trent balky in san francisco was noteworthy in that it sort of ran its course um and there was definitely a power struggle there. So, yeah, that's part of it. But if you're Adam Peters, you have to have the humility to also just recognize this ain't about me. And if I can get this guy who is a 100 percent proven winner everywhere he's been, no matter the circumstance, pro or college, you've got to make that happen. And I, I think this is the call of, you know, I think this is where Josh Harris probably weighs in behind the scenes and sort of puts his stamp on this as well. Like, I don't. I don't know that Adam Peters will have will, will be able to convince anyone that Harbaugh wouldn't be the right choice if that's available to him. But it's a worthwhile point because human beings are involved here and egos are involved. So I guess you would just hope that that wouldn't be a factor in this. Gil Alexander with us here in the fast lane. We'll, we'll close this part of the chat with him off with the <laughs> – you guys are synonymous with the uh, reformation, the reframing of a certain website known as, quote, wager on the internet, end quote. And I happen to have visited, quote, wager on the internet, end quote, to see if they have odds. And somehow Ben Johnson is minus 140. I'm not really sure how that got to be the next commander's coach. But for whatever it's worth, Bill Belichick is second, even though multiple reporters 
reporters, credible like John Kime and J.P. Finley, have said that ain't happening. So yeah. when you look at these odds for coaching searches, and obviously that's more of your sphere with the Beating the Book podcast and VSIN as well, but do you kind of hold off on that, especially this early in the process? Well, yeah, I don't. I mean, what is Harbaugh? By the way, what is Harbaugh's number? There? He's he's fourth, six to Slowick is five to one. Harbaugh is six to one, and then McDonald, who would have the ties to Peters, is at nine to one. Well, Ben Johnson is going to be the candidate du jour for everybody, right? He's going to be every every interview, every team. There's seven vacancies now after Gerard Mayo. Uh, we learned today had a contractual uh, succession to Bill Belichick. So the New England job is taken, but there's seven vacancies, and Ben Johnson's probably going to be interviewed by at least six of them. Uh, so maybe he's just a de facto favorite. And by the way, it should be noted that in betting markets like those offshore, where there are probably there's probably a limit to that market, I'm guessing as well in terms of a limit bet, it probably doesn't take a lot to move that market. I'm guessing. Um, so it could have been just one or two people making bets that moved Ben Johnson to the favorite. I would bet. I, I mean, if I'm a betting man, and oh, by the way, that I am, I would, uh, I would, I would take the flyer on Harbaugh at six to one. I really would. Um, could it end up being Ben Johnson? Absolutely, it could be if they decide again. You know, getting back to our original point, if it's decided that your new GM wants to go that direction and is going to be able to convince Josh Harris of that, sure, there's. There's always that possibility, but to me, the bet to make is Harbaugh at six to one. So pivoting away from that to Super Wild Card Weekend with Gil Alexander of Veasan and also the Beating the Book podcast, they did their Super Wild Card Weekend preview uh, a couple of days ago. It's out wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, uh, what coach or coaches come out of this particular weekend, and people go, "Oh." Raheem Morris with the Rams. Oh, Ben Johnson with the Lions. Maybe there's someone else or someone's else in this discussion where you look at the Super Wild Card weekend and all of a sudden it changes the narrative to a certain extent of who's attractive or maybe openings that pop up as well. Well, I mean, to that latter point, openings that pop up. I mean, I think there are scenarios, and I'm not the first to bring this up, but I certainly talked about it earlier in the week, which is, you know, you could read between the lines about what Jerry Jones said after week 18, where he was sort of asked about Mike McCarthy and, you know, he was very noncommittal. We'll, we'll see how it goes kind of thing. So if somehow the Green Bay Packers go into Dallas and upset the Cowboys, that would be a massive disappointment for the Cowboys after this season to get a number two seed and then to get bounced in the first round. I think Jerry Jones would get rid of Mike McCarthy if he knew he could get Bill Belichick. And I have a feeling that that's the one non-East Coast team that Bill Belichick would go to. Um, And he's been been linked to Atlanta more than any other team. But I think the Cowboys are the wild card. And I think that's the kind of team that's so stacked on both sides of the ball that if they were to, by the way, not even this week, but if they were to lose next week, if they were to get by this week and lose in the divisional round, I think that would apply as well. The other one that's been kind of interesting to me, Ed, which I didn't see coming, but their performance in the last six weeks has been so poor, is this Nick's, this growing wave of Nick Sirianni talk that if the Eagles were to lose to the Bucks on Monday night, that perhaps that would become an opening. Which, if you think about it, if that happened, man, does that reflect more than anyone or more than any you know other situation how tenuous being an NFL head coach is 
you know, south of Bill Belichick, where he obviously had job security for 24 years until now. It, you know, like, wow, you can go from being in the Super Bowl and perhaps, you know, in some people's view, getting kind of hosed in the Super Bowl one year to being ousted the second year if you lose first round of the playoffs. And and what's behind that, I guess, is the fact that beyond this losing five out of six for the Eagles is that their 10-1 and one record was a bit of a mirage. They probably should have lost three or four of those, quite frankly. The first Dallas game, certainly the Buffalo game, at least one or two of the Washington games. You know, that, that something inherent in that organization is so toxic at this point that they would make a move. That'll be the one to watch. I mean, so I do think there are consequences this week uh, in to those two franchises, Dallas and Philadelphia, which would, would kind of shock a lot of people. It won't shock me so much in the Dallas case, but it, it would certainly be an amazing story if it happened in Philly. Gil Alexander, his handle is Beating the Book. He's a host for VSIN on a numbers game and, of course, has got the Beating the Book podcast as well. And we're talking some NFL with him here in the fast lane. By the way, uh, we will have all the games on the CBS Sports Radio Lynchburg app, part of our Virginia Talk Radio Network platform, all the NFL playoff games this coming weekend. But, Gil, uh, to, to bring up your point as well about the coaching changes, there's a lot of talk about what might end up happening out of Wild Card Weekend. You mentioned Philly and you mentioned Dallas. Out of those, which one is more likely? Okay, in two weeks from now, Philly is who we thought they were for much of the second half of the year. Philly gets it together. Or maybe the other side, the Dallas Cowboys, quiet all the talk of Mike McCarthy because maybe they find themselves in the NFC title game battling the 49ers again. Yeah, uh, and so if you're asking me, like, what, what do I, I have to, you know, my handicap on these is that both Philly and Dallas win this week. So if you're asking, like, I, I have bets on Philadelphia, and I get it as bad as Philly's been, my whole handicap here is that they can't possibly be this bad to lose to Tampa Bay, right? Which, by the way, I might go down in flames on. But I, I genuinely think both teams win. I have some buddies who think the, the Packers are alive against the Cowboys, which I do not. But um, And I'm a big Jordan Love guy. I like him. But, you know, so it, what's more likely? To me, it's more likely that both win – and that both are saved no matter well, – I think Sirianni is safe. I, like, I cannot buy into the Sirianni thing like others are. That would be unbelievable if he were to get ousted um, after, again, being on the cusp of a Super Bowl title. The McCarthy thing, though, like, okay, if they beat if, – if, if Dallas is fortunate enough to beat Green Bay, remember, in the NFL they reseed uh, each round – so if you believe the Rams can upset the Lions, that means the Rams would end up going to San Francisco in that event, and then Dallas would get the uh, the Philly-Tampa Bay winner. Um, if, that, if you don't believe that the Rams can pull off that upset against Detroit, uh, then it would be, um, you know, then it would probably be, what would it be? Then it would be Detroit that would end up going to Dallas. And we just saw that matchup where Detroit, <laughs> according to a lot of you know, according to a lot of people, got hosed by Brad Allen and crew. So, you know, there's a scenario there where it doesn't really go the Cowboys' way, and they've got to defend against Detroit. And there's a lot of people who think Detroit could pull off that win, and I do think that that's the the most likely path of one of these guys get fired is that because I, I in my heart of hearts I don't think Sirianni will get fired, even though others do. But I do think there's a McCarthy scenario, and that would extend into next week. 
And while a lot of people can't see them losing to Green Bay, I think there's a ton of people who can see them losing to Detroit. Interesting. Wow, this could get real spicy indeed. Gil Alexander with us in the fast lane. Gil, we'll pivot away just for a second to the Australian Open because it's upon us and it is the first Grand Slam of the year. I I wish this was a couple of months later selfishly so that it would be after football season, but tennis doesn't care about our calendar and selfish wishes here in the (laughs) small pocket of the U.S. Um, Is this Novak Djokovic's men's tournament to lose or does he get kind of a rough draw with the potential of Yannick Sinner in the uh, semifinals and Alcaraz getting Medvedev. Who knows where those two will be if they were to meet up in the other semifinal? Well, it's the big question. I mean, Novak Djokovic has won 10 Australian Opens. So outside of Rafa winning 13 uh, French Opens on clay, this is the greatest domination of one player to a slam ever. However, he has a wrist injury. And so... You know, we've seen Novak have injuries before, and then it's, you know, much ado about nothing, and he shows he's the greatest player of all time. But a wrist is a wrist, and it could be problematic. And so, you know, is a is an 11th Australian Open and a 20, what are we, 24, I've already lost count, 25th Grand Slam, 24th, I can't even keep track anymore. Um, is it a done deal? No, because of that injury. And if it's not him... You know, it's going to be one of a. It's going to be one of the three guys at the top: Car- Carlos Alcaraz, Yannick Sinner, or Daniil Medvedev. I don't really believe there's a chance that anyone else can win this. Carlitos can win any tournament he enters. Yannick Sinner is now on the cusp of greatness. Finally, after so much potential that has largely gone unre- gotten you know gone unrealized because of the greatness of Djokovic and Alcaraz, but he is on the cusp. He got a fi- – Sinner got the the most favorable draw here of the bunch, and he's about 7-1. to one. Uh, And then there's Daniil Medvedev, who I think a lot of people are kind of – if you can say this about a guy who's been, you know, in the top three in the world for so many years and who's won a slam himself at the U.S. Open, he kind of is going under the radar at 10-1 to because he's always live, and especially these are these are super fast, hard courts at the Australian Open, and that plays into Medvedev's game perfectly. So to me, you know, again, it should should Djokovic be the short shot? He should be. Should Carlitos be the second shot? Yeah, he probably should be because you never know. He's always capable of beating anybody. But the value to me is probably center at 7-1, to one, uh, given the draw. If you're willing to take a flyer and if you're willing to believe that a somewhat diminished Djokovic can be had – by someone on any given day playing their A game, like like a sinner, uh, like an Alcaraz in the finals, or even before that, like a young American like Ben Shelton. If Ben Shelton played his complete A game and Djokovic was diminished with that wrist, that's the vulnerability. So I, I hope that answers that somewhat thoroughly. It answers it well enough. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of in the Ben Shelton. It's going to be a moment before he gets over the hurdle. It often is that way in men's tennis with it being three of five. But he's exciting. He's captivated a lot of Americans uh, as well. Uh, the women's side, I know you're a big Iga Svatek fan. I looked at that draw and was like, how did she get hosed on that one? Oh, uh, she got completely hosed. <laughs> completely hosed. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Does it change your uh, thought that she could actually win this thing or – is this the moment where maybe she gets the rough draw and she says, oh, this is a different version of her than people have seen, which is everyone's seen her dominate on clay, but you know, clay is her top surface. 
The Australian Open, she's won a hard court, different conditions, U.S. Open. But if, if she dominates this difficult of a draw, does that put everyone else on notice? Yeah, I mean, you know, again, for those who are sort of not big tennis people, so Rafa won 13 French Opens. Iga's already won three, and she's 22 years old. Can you predict that anyone ever will win 13 of a any Grand Slam ever again? No, but I said, but if somebody could, it would be Iga at the French Open. But she has won a slam on hard court. She won the U.S. Open a couple of years back. And, you know, she was the number one player in the world for 75 straight weeks. And it was really a burden on her. And when that streak finally got snapped, you know, she you could you could sense it last year. By the way, it's all relative because, you know, Iga's quote-unquote down year is still the greatest year in tennis. She won more tournaments than anybody else. She won a slam at the French. But she had a swoon by her standards. And then... Once that streak got snapped, she came back, she won in Beijing, and I immediately said, I was like, oh, that was Iga's way of saying to everybody, I hope you all enjoyed it while you could. Uh, and it's not just me saying it tongue-in-cheek like it's some you know, thought bubble over her head. She's retooled part of her game to combat the weaknesses of her playing the Elena Rybakina's of the world, who has been her sort of bugaboo. Uh, Rabakina having beaten her at the Australian Open last year in the round of 16 and at the semifinals at Indian Wells, tennis's de facto fifth major, if you will. So this is Iga, and I think you you said it right, Ed, which is, you know, if she wins this tournament, she will have done so with a brutal gauntlet of seven matches, beginning with a first-round match against the 2020 Australian Open champ, Sophia Kennan. Uh, but along the way, Alina Svitolina is a possible you know, round of 16 opponent. Svitolina beat her in the quarters at Wimbledon last year. Yelena Ostapenko is a possible quarterfinal opponent. Ostapenko beat her in the round of 16 at the U.S. Open last year. And then Rabakina, and then perhaps Goff or Sabalenka in the finals. So this is the one where if Iga wins it and she wins a fifth slam, that is Iga going from, oh, I'm already the number one player in the world to everything that I've ever thought of her, which is she's going to win double-digit slams and she's going to be the greatest of all time. Really, I mean that. And so this is this is a great gauge of that. Now, if she loses, you know, it, it will sort of drive home the, well, you know, at the top, and, you know, if she's likely to lose, the most likely person to beat her is Elena Rabakina, who happens to be on her half. And that's the biggest thing to know about this, the women's side, is that it's a big three. It's Sviatek, it's Rabakina, and Sabalenka. And so when you have a big three, by the way, apologies to Coco Golf, who's probably fourth, but when you have a big three in one of these random draws, obviously one of those three is going to be on one half of the draw and two are going to be on the other. Well, Sabalenka got the favorable draw. She doesn't concern me against Iga as much as Rabakina does, but Sabalenka, because she has the clearer half and certainly the clearer quarter, a lot of people are going to find value in betting her. Um, but Iga is absolutely the person to beat, despite the draw. For more insight into official plays, the Beating the Book podcast, the Australian Open preview one just dropped. Gil also has more official plays with he and his colleagues on their Super Wild Card Weekend one. We discussed that earlier in the Fast Lane. If you missed it, we're at Fast Lane Ed Lane on our socials and wherever you listen to podcasts. Beating the Book, that's also Gil's Twitter handle. Gil, thank you very much for your time today in the Fast Lane. We hope we didn't wear out our welcome with you. Uh, enjoy the weekend, and fingers crossed for you and for us that uh, some Novak Djokovic, Iga Shvatek tickets uh, get home in a couple of weeks. 
Thank you so much, Ed. I appreciate it. Enjoy Everybody enjoy football this weekend, man. It's going to be great. It will. Gil Alexander with us to wrap up the fast lane. That does it for us. As we mentioned, we're back Monday afternoon at 5. In the meantime, keep it locked to the Fast Lane Ed Lane and CBS Sports Radio Lynchburg socials for what's going on this weekend.